As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Well, it's been one of those days. That's five trailer loads, nearly 160 sheep, shifted from their tupping ground to their winter grass. What a day, mud, snow and fighting with sheep. It's Monty here again, Ross Montague, and welcome to this episode two of the series, mini-series that we're doing with the Morden Foundation to celebrate their centenary year 2020. We heard last episode about how Morden was established in 1920 by a group of forward-thinking farmers who were really alarmed at the rates of losses in their livestock. They came together and brought scientists into play to try and find cures and treatments to some of the terrible disease losses they were facing. One of the first successes was they identified that clostridial bacteria were the cause of many of these really nasty-sounding diseases like Braxy and Black disease and lamb dysentery. And farmers back then were scared of these diseases, but Morden gave them the tools to to not be so scared. Yeah. You know, you would have a dead animals or, or big parts of a flock going down, and, and they were just dead. And, and, and obviously farmers and vets in those days were very interested. They'd open them up the carcasses and have a look to see what was there. Very fortunately, the the scientists a few years later went on to develop some of the very first vaccines against clostridial disease. So it was a a huge success. If you haven't already listened to that episode, you'll find it in the catalogue of on-farm podcasts, probably just below this one. We switch now for this episode from looking at the past to looking to the future. And we're going to hear about how Morden is still fighting livestock disease still fighting for its farming owners and now also playing a part in combating human pandemics including the dreaded COVID-19. When coronavirus first came out we do have quite a bit of expertise at dealing with infectious disease outbreaks so so we are contributing through testing. We're also working with the NHS and other aspects of uh, the coronavirus effort for example looking at um, you know immunity to the coronaviruses that um, circulate in, uh, in animal species as well. And gosh This episode, we're going to hear from someone at the other side of the world. We'll hear from Jess, a sheep farmer in New South Wales, Australia, whose flock of merino sheep were struggling, significantly suffering from Barber's pollworm. We'll hear how Barbervax, a vaccine developed right here in Scotland at the Morden, has turned around the fortunes of a sheep farm. Prior to Barbervax coming out, there hasn't been a lot of new drenches come out in Australia. There's been two more recently but you know we want to save them for when we need them as such not overuse them yeah it just made a massive difference to our health of our our ewes and our pasture and 
which obviously flows on to everything, wool production and the ewes rearing their lambs, yeah, all that sort of stuff. I'm guessing that New South Wales is the furthest away geographically we're ever likely to get, and it just shows the global influence of Morden. Before we get to the main bit of the show, a big thanks as always to anyone and everyone who's been shouting and sharing and sharing and shouting about the last episode on Twitter, Facebook, all over social media. It's great. We love it. You know, we're here to tell stories and we're always, always grateful for those of you who help us to do so. Probably not surprisingly, we've had some great Twitter feedback from more than team members, uh, Philip Skuse and Beth Wells. Thanks very much. Also, Andrew Moyer and also the National Sheep Association, who we'll speak to in another one of these more than episodes coming up. And remember, you'll find us on Twitter at on underscore farm UK. Now, now, I hope we're all paying attention. We've got some real hardcore science coming up. We've got some real hard hitters in the science world from Morden coming up. I learned a lot speaking to them and I hope you will too. My name's uh, Tom McNeely. I'm a, a vet by training, was in mixed practice for a few years and then moved into the dark side of research. So I'm head of one of the departments at Morden that focuses on disease control. So that's basically, you know, ways of controlling infectious disease in livestock. My name is Mara Rocky. I'm a vet. I do run the viral surveillance unit. We do perform tests on the on behalf of the Scottish Government in collaboration with SRUC, the Scottish Rural College, to look for infectious diseases, especially in ruminant. And then we've got Al Nisbet. Al, could you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Al Nisbet. Yeah, I'm head of the Vaccines and Diagnostics Department uh, here at Morden. I've been here just about 17 years now and have had a, a career in, in trying to develop new ways of controlling pests and parasites and, and diseases. Al, I'm going to come to you first then, because vaccines, very topical at the moment. Just give us a little bit of a background to what, what, what a vaccine is and why we need a vaccine for livestock. What, you know, what, what are we talking about here? Sure, yeah, it's very topical indeed, of course, uh, vaccines at the moment. There are a number of diseases uh, of, of livestock that we can control with, with current drugs. There are some diseases that we can't control with with, with current drugs, and for both of those uh, th- those categories of diseases, vaccines are really important. Diseases that we can't currently uh, control with drugs, obviously, we need some way of controlling them. Partly, we can do that through management, but if we had vaccines for them, that would make life an awful lot easier. And some of the diseases that we can control uh, with drugs currently, the organisms that cause the diseases are starting to become resistant to to the drugs. Um, and so vaccines is a, a good, safe, cheap alternative way to, to try to control those diseases. I guess, you know, I'm speaking from a sheep farming point of view, I'm getting my head around this. We are better to control diseases with a vaccine rather than look to treat with drugs. Is that that's that's the principle of what you're talking about here? In many cases, uh, yes. Uh, you know, it doesn't apply to, to all diseases. Um, there are a lot of viral diseases that you know we, we can't currently control by, uh, by by using drugs so you know we would have to rely on, on on vaccines but certainly you know if you think of the the kinds of things that are used to control bacterial diseases you know antimicrobials antibiotics if we can replace those with with vaccines then obviously that extends the the life of of things like antibiotics um, again you know the some of the the chemicals that used to control parasites 
if we have an alternative to, to using those chemicals, then we can prolong the, the life of both the chemicals and use vaccines at the same time. Tom, you've just rushed in from the, the post-mortem lab, is that right? Uh, I'm just come, come down from the post-mortem suite uh, on site where we've been looking at the effectiveness of a, a vaccine against um, a cattle worm parasite that causes big losses in production in cattle systems. So very similar to the roundworms that affects sheep production, you'll probably be aware of. Currently, they're treated with drugs, but as, um, as Al was mentioning, we're, we're getting increasing problems with drug resistance. And so there's a real push to try and get other means of control. So, um, so we, we have a, a program that's funded through Scottish Government to develop vaccines against this uh, parasitic worm. Well, you'll be aware that um, cattle and ruminants in general are getting a bit of a hard time about the emissions of greenhouse gases. So there's a drive really um, to improve all of our society on this globe, you know, um, through reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And one good way of doing that is by making uh, production more efficient. So we really need to sort of be studying, you know, vaccines and new therapeutics for these these more chronic diseases, less spectacular than, you know, some, some diseases that come into your, um, into your flock or herd and cause big losses. But these are the kind of the silent sort of insidious kind of diseases that are making farming inefficient in a way that we're contributing to the industry and the effort is to to develop ways that we can make farming more um, more environmentally friendly and sustainable. I hope the listeners are, are, are grateful to hear that kind of thing because we're, we're up against that, aren't we? You know, we're, our backs are against the wall sometimes with climate change campaigners and suggesting that what we are doing is is damaging the environment. So that is definitely something that we, we, should, we should keep in our armory there that, you know, the healthier we can have our livestock, the more efficient we'll be. Um, just again on that, Al, there's been a big breakthrough in recent years with uh, a vaccine against a parasitic worm. Is that right? You know, rather than just worming the, the sheep, you've developed a vaccine. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there's there's been a, a group at Mordun who have developed uh, a vaccine against the, the barber's pole worm, uh, which is a, a very common worm and a very uh, damaging worm in sort of subtropical and tropical uh, regions, not quite so much in, in the UK, although we, we are seeing um, occasional cases of, uh, of, of barber's pole worm in, in the UK and possibly more frequently. But this, this is a really big issue in uh, Australia, South Africa. There's a, a group at Mordun who, over the, the period of about 20 to 25 years, uh, developed a new vaccine against barber's pole worm. And in fact, it's the only vaccine that's that's been produced uh, against the parasite of of sheep. You know, it's it's been a real breakthrough uh, that that was developed here at Mordun and first marketed uh, through a a company that was this actually a spin out company from Mordun in Australia in, in two thousand and fourteen, and since then it's been used fairly widely in the northern tablelands of of New South Wales. Particularly in areas where um, antomintics, uh, you know, wormers that no longer work against the barber's pole worm in, in sheep in that area. So in the in these areas, it's been a real game changer. It sounds a massive game changer, especially when you say that there's massive resistance problems to the drugs that are used against these worms. We're now going to hear from a New South Wales farmer who has benefited from the use of barbervax. Good morning, Jess here. Just out shifting a little mob of ewes and lambs. Have my um, black and tan Kelpie Grace. She's a um, six-year-old female, along with her sister, which is red and tan female possum. 
obviously the flow and effect from Barber's Pole, you know, it's the sheep get crook and not rearing their lambs or growing wool or fattening in the operation. So yeah, it was was a very big relief when Barber Vax was brought into Australia. My name is Jess Orport. We are based up in the northern New England, east of Guyra, generally in a higher rainfall area. Our size of our property is about seven and a half thousand acres and we shore 2,300 sheep back in August. So I'm just up here at the gateway and I'm um, just going to put them through the gate. So prior to Barbavax coming out, there hasn't been a lot of new drenches come out in Australia. There's been two more recently, but you know, we want to save them for when we need them as such, not overuse them. In a good summer, in a normal season, we could drench sheep sort of three times in six to eight weeks with Barber's Pole. And yeah, just made a massive difference to our health of our, our ewes and our pasture, and which obviously flows onto everything. Wool production and the ewes rearing their lambs. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. Oh, what do you make of that? Good feedback on your your work. It's great feedback, and yeah, you know, certainly not not my work. It's, it's the work of uh, one of the teams at, at Mordun, but yeah, fantastic feedback, and actually very typical of the the feedback that we get in that area. You know, it's I guess um, you know it's a truism of a lot of uh, industry that you don't actually change things until you really need to. In that area, they really needed to to change to get something else, and, and they've seen huge benefits from it. Yeah, we, we certainly have had great feedback from uh, from users in New South Wales. What is it about New South Wales? Why was there such a problem? It's um, it's partly to do with the geography. The area in New South Wales where the the Barbara's Pole Worm occurs is the the Northern Tablelands, and that's a a summer rainfall area. And this worm really likes warm and wet conditions it needs warm and wet conditions to to survive and it really thrives there i'm gonna just if you like knuckle down on this because i need a, a wee bit of an understanding about how a vaccine prevents infection by a parasite i understand at least i think i do understand how i can treat a parasite a parasitic infection and how i can hopefully knock it out but if i if i had one of these vaccines and i vaccinated sheep with it what's the action that prevents the the worm taking a hold as it were yeah so it really comes down to to what the parasite eats the barber's pole worm's principal diet in fact it's its only diet is blood it bites the the, the inside of the stomach wall of the sheep and it drinks blood that blood's full of antibodies. The antibodies go into the parasite and they attach onto the gut of the parasite. In some cases, that'll kill the parasite. In many cases, it actually just prevents the parasite from being able to produce eggs, uh, which you know are a big issue because they come out and contaminate the pasture. That's really you know a very basic uh, way in which in which the vaccine works. It, it works very much in, in the same way as any other vaccine in that you inject something into an animal, it produces antibodies against the against the pathogen. It's particularly effective against Barber's pollworm because it drinks a lot of blood, so it takes in a lot of antibody against itself. It's kind of mind-blowing that because, I, I you know, I, as I say, you think of something that um, 
a vaccine being against a virus, not against something, you know, a, a, a worm, as it were. That's, that's just... Tom, you're listening to that too. I, I, animal welfare issues aside here, why should a Scottish institution like Morden be so keen to help what some farmers here might see as our competitors at the other side of the world? I guess there's two things. One is that um, Homonchus contortus is not a parasite that is very prevalent in Scotland or in the UK. But um, as we're getting warmer and wetter uh, climates, we are seeing more Homonchus in the UK. So we're definitely having... So Homonchus, that's, that's Barber's Pole. Yeah. That's the Barber's yeah. Pole worm, yeah. 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 Okay. So, so we're, we're having more problems with Barber's Pole worm in the UK. And we're predicting that that would increase. The, the second uh, point is that... Um, by understanding how to develop a vaccine against one worm really helps you develop vaccines against other worms. So for example, I've just come down from the post-mortem suites. We're using a similar approach to control this cattle worm that we used for the barber's pole worm. What's the cattle worm? What are you, what are you working on there? It's Ostertagia, uh, Ostertagii. So it's the most pathogenic or disease controlling worm affecting cattle globally. Certainly one of the main benefits I see from developing a, the Barber's Pole worm vaccine to commercialization is that we now have a full, you know, sort of um, understanding of the pipeline to get a, a vaccine developed at Morden out into the field. And that's the pipeline that we'll take for other vaccines going forwards. I should point out um, that this vaccine was developed by Morden and has been um, uh, commercialized by Morden with our Australian partners. So there was no big pharmaceutical company involved in this, which I think is another really sort of striking result um, for the investigators involved. That sounds like a win-win. Not only are you sort of breaking the ground there and potentially bringing along vaccines that might benefit us, but you're also you're commercialising and bringing funding for the other work that you need to do at the Institute. I think that's a really important point, actually, Monty, because our model for any profit that's made from any of our products is that that money all comes back into the Institute to, to fund research. So a lot of the money that, that's come back in from the sale of, of this vaccine and from other products that, uh, that that we've produced and licensed over the years actually comes in to fund our younger scientists, uh, you know, our, our, uh, our new fellows, um, as well as you know, existing um, research pro- projects here. So it's, it's a fantastic model, actually. I'm going to be gallant here, Mara, and I'm going to suggest that you're the youngest of these scientists. Are you feeling the benefit of, in your work, of income from the commercialisation of, of vaccines, etc.? Yes, that is correct, but not only from vaccines. With funding provided by Morden and by the Scottish government, we started to look into tick-borne diseases. Again, those are linked and they will be more and more linked to global warming. As you know, the ticks are moving up north. When they're moving up north, they're bringing new diseases and they're also bringing out diseases that we thought were almost gone. So recently, in collaboration with Public Health England, we managed to demonstrate that now there is tick-borne encephalitis. That is a human disease, but it's transmitted by the same tick that will transmit other diseases like lauping eel in sheep or tick-borne fever. So all this research work will open other avenue and will open a possibility to understand what the real situation is. So we are actually, through the tick, as it were, we're linking louping ill to basically human disease and, and, and tick-borne diseases that affect humans. We hear about One Health. 
is that work part of the, the sort of One Health strategy? Is that right? Yeah, I think the majority of the veterinary diseases, you can see a, a One Health component. Most of the disease that you can find in your animal, especially food producing animal, can be reflected in disease that can be transmitted to human and vice versa. So we need to be alert and we need to be looking for those diseases, not only from the human side, but from the veterinary side. And if you can combine the information on both, that will give you a better understanding of what is going on on the field. Ticks moving um, moving north and carrying diseases that, you know, as you say, we thought we'd forgotten about. Is that, does that something that keeps you awake at night? Is that a nightmare scenario? Not really, not just now, because we have been so busy with COVID that that one has actually taken over. <laughs> But yeah, it's something that is always at the back of our mind because you never know when the next zoonosis, the next animal to human transmitted disease will come from. And the tick have a very high potential to do that. We talked about it in previous episode, but COVID, the, the rise of COVID, as it were, that, that was zoonosis, wasn't it? That, was, that definitely did come from animals and, and, and spread into the human population. Yes, that, that is the current understanding, although there has been alternative hypothesis presented, especially recently. So you're actually involved in that at the moment then, the, the testing and against, against coronavirus? Yes, we started discussing this with the NHS in March, and by the 25th of June, we started testing. We have a number of scientists on site that have offered their time as volunteer for the testing. From June until now, we have tested in excess of 10,000 samples. Most of those are care home staff, care home resident, but also some sample from the hospitals. It's high stakes getting this right then. How does it feel to be part of that battle and, and the importance of getting it right in the battle against COVID? Well, it's not only me. I think all the people that have been volunteering here at work, we have been very proud of what we have achieved in a short time. It gives you a very good feeling because you work with a large number of people you might not have been worked with those people before, but also, and it build up a, a team spirit very quickly, which is good for the work that we're doing just now for the coronavirus, but it's also very good for the work that we will be doing in future, because now we know we have at least 21, if not more people that can work very well together, no matter what you throw them at. Team building in, in the fight against disease. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this chat in the sense that I'm getting a real feeling for, you know, all of these things are driving us forward in, you know, in the battle against against various diseases. And, and, and you guys are the frontline workers. I'd just also like to add on, you know, another sort of um, interesting area. Mara's mentioned that we're working on in the coronavirus effort. The veterinary community in, in general has been pretty used to dealing with large outbreaks of infectious disease. If we think back to the foot and mouth disease outbreak, there's a lot of expertise in uh, infectious disease. One would argue that the, the, the veterinary sort of world is, is more used to having new infectious diseases. So, you know, swine influenza, for example, and controlling them through testing, deploying vaccines if you have them, but also things like um, restricting movements. So for the veterinary community, when, when coronavirus first came out, there was a lot of interest in the veterinary world because... We do have quite a bit of expertise at dealing with infectious disease outbreaks. So, so we are contributing through testing. We're also working with the NHS and other aspects of uh, the coronavirus effort. For example, looking at um, you know, immunity to their coronaviruses that um, 
circulate in uh, in animal species as well. The bovine coronavirus has been in our in our um, cattle herds for a few years. Does cause some mild disease, but is very closely related to a human coronavirus. So I think there's a lot that you know, sort of studying animal disease can contribute to society in general, directly or indirectly. Tom. I want to come back to something that I believe you're involved in, which, from what I gather, could be a bit of a game changer in terms of what we do on the farm. I think you refer to it as pen-side diagnostics, is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. So I think the general concept is that um, if you're going to try and tackle disease, then you need to know which animals have the disease. So that's kind of pretty straightforward. And Mara Surveillance Lab is uh, integral to that understanding. So for, for farmers and vets, they can submit samples to a remote lab, get a result, and then act on that result. In some circumstances, it's actually of greater benefit for the farmer to, to know the result straight away. For example, you know, if he's having to make decisions at that time as to whether to segregate animals, to put animals into different areas, to quarantine an animal, or to release it from quarantine. So there is a really big push to try and shorten the time from the taking a sample to getting the result and then making the decision. So what, what's this going to entail then? What are, you, what are you working on in terms of bringing things closer and shortening that time frame? Well, um, so I'll take a couple of examples. Uh, one is um, you can, this would be quite related to uh, our understanding of what we're doing for coronavirus. So if you think of how we test for coronavirus, one measure is looking for the actual virus itself, so the, the pathogen, the disease-causing organism. And so there are, some, there are new methods in which you can quite quickly um, detect the you know, fragments of the, of the, the, the pathogen, the, the, the bug causing the disease. So um, it, there's, there's certainly a few projects where they're not just trying to say yes, no, but they're actually trying to sort of understand which which of the pathogens it is. So, for example, dairy farming, there are different um, uh, bacteria that cause mastitis. So if you could discriminate between different types of bacteria, you can then sort of select your treatment uh, on the animal straight away. And early treatment of mastitis is, is pretty, pretty critical to the outcome of that infection. And these can take, you know, the form of, you know, a bit like sort of, you know, pregnancy test kits, where you actually take your sample and you yeah. put it onto the device and you get a sort of color change. Yeah. So, so pretty straightforward. So th these are sort of broad technologies we're sort of looking into. So that's where it's going then. Ultimately, I'm going to be able to to have a, a pregnancy tester type thing, wand, whatever it is, and stick it in the ear of the sheep or something, and it tells me, yeah, it gives me the, the result there and then. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, yeah. So Al's probably more uh, involved in the the test. I'm. That's a good example of this. But it's a test for sheep scab. So if you actually have sheep coming on farm, you want yep. to know quite quickly whether that animal has um, has been exposed to sheep scab or potentially is yep. infected. Because Al, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, sheep scab, sheep mites, they all kind of look the same to the to the farmer's eye, and yet, as Tom says, waiting for a diagnostic from a lab or a vet can just take too long. You're absolutely right. You know, I think particularly in terms of, of sheep scab, there are lots of other things that look a bit like sheep scab. Infestation with lice, for example, can make the sheep pretty itchy and, you know, scratch up against things. And actually the treatments for lice and for scab would be completely different. So it's really important, as Tom said, you, you've got to know what you're dealing with before you start treating it. Currently, that's a, a laboratory test, um, but one of our scientists is, is developing that test into a uh, test in the, in the way that Tom described. Uh, this sort of pregnancy test um, type um, setup. 
what what what's what's next on the horizon, Al? What's next on the horizon? Yeah, well, we, you know, there's a lot of really exciting science going around uh, at the moment, particularly you know in the vaccines and the diagnostics uh, field, partly driven by by current circumstances. Um, so there are a lot of new technologies and new techniques that have been developed for you know sort of rapid response to to, to viruses to various other diseases that we um, are also developing as as technologies that we can use in delivering vaccines for livestock. All of these things that uh, are, are going around just now that are innovations uh, are being built into our, our, our program. Uh, so you know we, we're really excited in terms of producing new vaccines for some of the, the diseases that you know really vex um, farmers in, in the UK uh, and diagnostic tests as well, you know, really um, pushing forward w- w- with these new technologies. Tom mentioned earlier that we've developed this, this vaccine against Barber's Pole and that really informs what we do uh, in terms of some of the, the diseases that are important to, to UK farmers. So one of the, the projects that we're, we're really busy uh, pushing forward with is a a new vaccine against some of the the worms that infect sheep in the the UK and cause really serious production losses in in sheep in the UK. So uh, thinking particularly here of the the, the brown stomach worm. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm interrupting, but I'm quite excited about things that are going to potentially save me from worming sheep and and, and the the, the problems that we have with, you know, potential anthelmintic resistance, etc. Where are we with that? I'm, I'm excited. Where are we, you know, are we years from seeing this or is it on the cusp? Are we... Well, it's, uh, you know, with, with all of these projects, um, the length of time to actually get something to market depends on market forces uh, and, and investment in things. You know, you, you look at, you know, harking back to, to COVID uh, vaccines, you know, that, that was a 10 year project put into 10 months. And that's because of an enormous investment and, and a huge requirement uh, for it. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a huge requirement for uh, a vaccine against against worms and sheep in the UK, but the actual investment into developing that kind of vaccine isn't nearly as as large. Having said that, in terms of the science, we have developed a, a prototype vaccine that does impact on on worms that infect sheep in the UK. Um, so, th- so that's really exciting. It's a, again, that's the first first vaccine of its type against worms in in, in any ruminant. Um, so we're we're really pleased about that. What we need to do now is to make sure that that vaccine is actually fit for purpose. Does it work well in the field? Can we simplify it to make it cheap? Does it give you long-lasting protection and sort of optimise all of these things to, to actually make it a, a commercial reality? Tom, it is, you know, it's it's probably almost like science fiction or it would be like science fiction to the Morden founders, this kind of talk, would it not? Um, well, I think uh, the the founders were a pretty canny lot. I mean, uh, if you think about the clostridial vaccines that we use today and uh, really underpin the sheep sheep farming industry, without which you have lots of dead lambs, uh, they were all developed at um, uh, at Morden. It's a similar sort of idea. Most of those um, uh, original vaccines, they figured out what was causing the disease, so they figured out it was these uh, clostridial bacterial diseases. They figured out what was causing the disease, so it's the toxins that, that are produced by these bacteria. And then if you inject these toxins into an animal, it generates an antibody response. And um, we're doing similar sort of things going forward, but we have a, a much better way of, um, of trying to find the targets of the, of the bug that we need to inject into the animal. Our tools are getting more refined in the fact that we can sequence the genome 
of the parasites and we can figure out, you know, through very, you know, sort of refined techniques exactly what molecules the parasites are producing. But it's the same sort of concept uh, that we're using uh, in our founders. It's just um, we've got maybe slightly better tools to, to, to look at it in more depth. Oh, would they be proud? The people that came together and founded Morden, would they be proud of where you guys are now? I'd, I'd really hope so. Um, you know, I think we're still doing what they set up the organisation to do in the first place. A hundred years ago. Yeah, a hundred years ago. And, you know, things have moved on. We've, you know, diversified into, into other species. Uh, you know, we've taken on new technologies and new scientific areas. But essentially, we're still doing exactly what they set us up to do, which is listen to farmers, find out what their issues are and produce solutions to, to their problems. I really need a feel. I, I think our listeners really need a feel for why this all matters. You know, we're talking about big science. We're talking about lots and lots of effort. We're talking about zoonosis and, 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 and One Health and, and making sure that, um, that animals are healthy and humans are healthy. Why, why does it all really matter, Tom? Well, um, uh, we as a society and as a globe have huge challenges facing us. We have an uh, increase in climate um, change or in- increasing temperature in our climates. We have increased numbers of people on this planet um, and we have limited resource. So why does it matter uh, about understanding infectious disease? Uh, well, essentially, we need to supp- secure our own food supply and that's going to involve the agricultural industry. Um, People are still going to be eating red meat and white meat, and um, uh, that's not going to stop anytime soon. So we're going to have to manage feeding the the world, the globe, uh, with food uh, that's uh, sustainable to produce. So by that, I mean that it's going to be safe to eat, so it's not going to have bugs in it. It's going to um, have minimal impact on the climate So, um, so, uh, and the environment. We haven't really mentioned the environment, but... um, we need to be aware that um, you know farming systems have to be not damaging to the environment. So, basically, being able to support you know ecosystems like the pollinating uh, insects, for example, that are really critical. We need to really kind of you know understand what diseases are present. You know how we can uh, farm sustainably in the background of those diseases, and also um, we need to think quite carefully about. Um, the next diseases that are coming our way. Uh, one thing that coronavirus has, has told us is that um, there are always going to be diseases on the horizon. And one thing that um, is is really striking, I think, in the, the effort to control coronavirus is that um, the vaccines that have become available are using really the, the latest vaccine technology, these mRNA vaccines. That's the cutting edge. That is the latest development in vaccinology. And uh, what we've shown as a sort of a globe is that we can take this technology and actually deploy it quite rapidly if there's a need and a, and a will. So um, why does it matter? I think it matters because we're, we have to come up with new solutions for what is becoming an increasing number of, of issues that are affecting us on this globe. Al, there might be someone out there listening who thinks, do you know what? The best answer to these problems, um, this disease and livestock, etc., is just not to eat livestock. Let's not eat meat at all. What, what, what would be your answer to that? Yeah, I mean, there's a growing body of people who, who feel that way. Having said that, there's a, a very large number of people who still see the value in rearing animals as a, as a food. And if you look at somewhere like Scotland, where you've got 
85% of the, the, the land surface is not suitable for, for raising anything other uh, than sheep or, or, you know, upland cattle. So, you know, there's, there's no value in, in trying to produce arable crops uh, on, on, on that kind of land. Um, so if, if we are going to address the requirements in terms of world protein uh, and in terms of domestic protein supply, we need to be using these areas. The one thing I would say is that if we are going to, to farm livestock for meat, which I think should be, we need to do it in the most sustainable and highest welfare manner that we possibly can. I think that's what I'm about, and I hope that's what a lot of our listeners are about. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, all of this expertise, all in a, in a lab at the bottom of the Pentland Hills, or labs at the bottom of the Pentland Hills, how do farmers get in touch, and can we get directly in touch with you if we've had a problem and, or, or an issue we want to, to look at? Mara? Yes, yes, you can. There is a website, and I'm pretty sure that um, a lot of people know what uh, web address is. is also on the newsletter that is sent out to the foundation members. You can call our receptions. We do our best to deal with your request as quickly as we can. If we cannot answer your question, we will try to find someone. The only thing I have to say is that in some cases, we have to refer you back to your vet or uh, discuss the problem with our vet because we are not able to offer you a veterinary service because that's not our job. It's super. And yeah, as I said earlier, I think my mind's blown with what you guys are trying to do. Thanks to you all for that. And we're in safe hands. I guess that's the way of putting it. I think we're in safe hands and in going into the future of, of Scottish, UK, global livestock agriculture. Um, perfect. Thank you very much for that, and thank you very much for taking part today. Well, that was fascinating stuff. A bit of a brain workout, I think, as well. So maybe not the best for listening when you're driving or whatever, but sit down, listen again, maybe. And as Mara mentioned, the website, www.moredun.co.uk, it doesn't cost a lot to join and be a member of Moredun and support them in their work. And, yeah, I hope it's come through in this episode the value of Morden and, and what they do for the livestock industry. If you can, join up, sign up, become a member and show them some support. I'm sure that would help to make sure that they're still there, still keeping going for the next hundred years. You can find out more about how to join up at, again, on the Morden website, www.morden.co.uk. 